Welcome to Feminist Question Time. It's brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on our website, womensdeclaration.com, where you'll find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 37,362 people from 160 countries and is supported by 518 organisations. We have many volunteer activists, including country contacts from every continent. Do join us. You can become a member, a volunteer, donate, and or just come along to webinars. And you can get in touch with us at info at womensdeclaration.com or via your country contact on the website. Today, we have four speakers. We have Andrea Heinz, from who is from Canada, Ellie Arrow from Germany, and they're going to talk about the international survivor-led podcast that they're involved with. Then we are going to hear from Sarah Fillimore, who is a family law barrister and member of Fair Cop, and she's from the UK, and she'll be talking about the Rachel Mead case and wider issues around legal cases and and change. And then we've got Hannah Ryan, who's here. Hi, Hannah. And she'll she'll talk. And she's from UK and she's going to do a call to action on the proposed WHO, World Health Organization guideline for the health of trans and gender diverse people. Um, so thank you so much for coming. So we're going to go first to our first um, speakers who are Andrea Heinz and Ellie Arrow. Andrea Heinz is a socialist feminist from Canada, who spent um, seven years in Edmonton's licensed sex industry. She's a peer-reviewed scholar on commercial sexual exploitation, has written for several professional publications, participated in a number of interviews, and appeared as a witness for the Parliamentary Review of Canada's Prostitution Laws. And Ellie Arrow is from Germany. She's a feminist activist from Germany who's been accumulating and imparting knowledge on the sex industry with a focus on legal regimes, sex buyers and more since 2017. She shares her insights on WordPress, YouTube and Twitter and gives public talks and media interviews. So welcome, Andrea and Ellie, and over to you. So uh, as many of you are aware, we're here to talk about our survivor-led sex industry abolitionist project, uh, which is a podcast that we are forming among um, nine of us in total. So um, the next slide here has our logo, which uh, we have just finalized, and we're really, really excited about it. We think it's quite eye-catching. We like the fact that there is a light being shone on the money which is uh, something that we felt was very important to include somewhere within our logo to talk about the commercialized context of sexual exploitation. So um, yeah, there's that for us. And uh, and like I said, we're super excited about that because um, I think Ellie's a little bit talented with drawing, but I'm definitely not. So it was nice to be able to outsource that. So for anyone who is just listening in and perhaps isn't able to follow along with the PowerPoint, uh, I will read out our mission statement and um, then any questions, of course, at the end, we, we've left a little bit of time so we can go over anything. So Red Light Exposé is an international grassroots survivor-led circle, which formed last year in 2023 to combat the growing acceptance and endorsement of sex work ideology. 
Our mission is to raise awareness of the harms of commercializing sex and the industries, prostitution, porn, stripping, BDSM, and kink that exploits socioeconomically marginalized people, particularly women and girls. We as a collective support the adoption of equality model legislation worldwide while calling for an improvement in social security. Through honest, in-depth conversations, we aim to elevate voices that are often ignored and silenced, moving us forward in our shared vision of healthy and safe societies for all people. So we sat and, and really wanted to make sure that our mission statement was really all-encompassing to uh, not only the issue that we see happening, which is, again, this growing acceptance and endorsement of sex work ideology, but also what our actual goals are, which are to really name the harm and to uh, really give it room to breathe, to be heavily dissected, because um, we know that, you know, these conversations uh, are really stifled within community globally. We're, we're seeing a lot of individuals that are just not being heard and a lot of platforming being done by those who are in favor of, of uh, course of sex practices. So um, then moving on to our next slide, some of the topics that we really want to touch on and make sure that we cover uh, when we're looking at this issue, obviously, there's always kind of the triangle, which commonly is prostitution, pornography, and trafficking. A lot of the issues that we discuss fall under one of those umbrella terms. So again, for those who are listening in, just some of the things that we want to make sure that we dissect a bit are, you know, the sugaring issue, which we're all well aware of as infiltrating into a lot of post-secondary institutions. Uh, we look at the work of Nordic Model Now with combating the uh, the uh, student sex work toolkit that was coming out of the UK. Um, so we really want to touch on that because here in Canada, the, the numbers are staggering. Some of our universities, especially here, are reaching some of the top uh, sugaring websites for universities um, seeking arrangement has said that I think something about three of our universities are in the top 10 of sugaring. So um, we definitely want to touch on, of course, the standard escorting brothels, also known as body rub. We want to get into stripping, uh, you know, all of the survival sex. So the street level exploitation that is still occurring in certain pockets of areas of the, the world. Um, getting over into pornography, we obviously want to really touch on what we're seeing in the trends of AI and deep fakes, because we're right on the cusp of all these new changes. And um, these things, as again, as we know, are just not making the front lines. So it's a very unknown area, even to many of us, but we're hoping to really find some people who are savvy in AI that can kind of give us a little bit more insight into that so that we can create some proactive strategies to combat it. Um, I think someone in the chat had said, don't forget OnlyFans. So right there beneath it, we do have OnlyFans. Um, or this concept of, you know, self-driven uh, prostitution. So we we really want to kind of talk about the power dynamics and um, how exploitation can still occur in contexts where the seller, the exploited person is seemingly in charge of their, their own activity. BDSM and kink culture, obviously replications of trauma, um, you know, opportunism of exploiters to find vulnerable women who fall into prostitution and are looking for more money as BDSM and kink acts typically do pay higher amounts of, of uh, compensation to the women. Dark web, kind of getting into how police tackle those things, how they how we can stop content from getting onto the dark web. Uh, all the grooming, the child abuse, everything that links into this. 
uh, touching on trafficking, how it all ties in, especially in Canada, to our missing and murdered Indigenous women. So a huge issue in Canada with over 4,000 uh, suspected MMIWs. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, policy, laws, policing. We could probably make a whole podcast just on that topic with how that is always such a moving piece of the puzzle globally. And, uh, you know, the push for Nordic model legislation, as well as the simultaneous push for full decrim. So kind of uh, examining that back and forth battle. Um, we want to touch on culture, especially that is a huge, huge part uh, for many of us, because uh, when we talk to one another in our formation, we realized that the culture was really what brought a lot of us together in becoming exploited was this social conditioning effect and the the normative effect that results from so much of this acceptance. So we want to talk about sexual sexual education within post-secondary education institutions, uh, right down to what we're seeing in schools, in elementary grades. We want to talk about media depictions within film, music, obviously the stigma, um, how that term is often uh, distorted and made to uh, appear as though that is the main issue that those in the commercial sex industry face. Um, and and how uh, decrim movements use that to justify full decriminalization, claiming that that will remove all the issues that those who are being exploited face. And then among all these three umbrella terms is really the root of it all there in the center that we want to really try to make headway on. And that's touching on the objectification, the misogyny, the poverty, the racism, the sexual violence, um, self-harm, trauma, dissociation. There's just countless topics that we can pull on and uh, really, really dissect as a group with our our many diverse experiences and insights. And then, of course, after we, you know, get into all these topics, we don't want to leave people feeling hopeless. <laughs> and it it is a very heavy topic that can be very draining and um, vicariously traumatizing as well. So, of course, we want to always loop back to inspiring people that there is hope that through, you know, feminist ideology and practice, as well as, you know, healthy activism, where we're safeguarding our own hearts and, and our spirit, um, that we can reach healing, and that hopefully we can work towards, um, you know, support for establishing the equality model worldwide. Um, so that I think is all that I want to touch on. And then I'm going to pass it over to Ellie to continue. Right, so I'll talk a little bit about who is involved in the project. As you can see, we have a big group of women, and um, I don't have to explain to this audience why it's important that it's women-only, women-led, and uh, survivor-led. So seven out of the nine women you see here um, survived the sex industry, various parts of it, and the other two, well, we still live in a, in a porn and sex industry mentality, saturated culture, and can speak to that. And uh, because this is all volunteer-based, um, uh, the idea is that it's not all going to be on the shoulders of just one woman, but we'll share that. So if someone um, has, for whatever reason, uh, can't participate um, one month or so, there are other women um, who will shoulder it then. And so from Canada, we have April Eve Weiberg who is uh, a survivor of sexual exploitation herself, an Indigenous woman, public speaker and activist. Andrea, you've just met. Michelle Abel is a survivor of familial trafficking and also now an activist for survivors. In Ireland, we have Mia Dering, 
um, who also survived sexual exploitation herself, has written a, a very insightful uh, book about it um, that I can't recommend enough um, uh, called Any Girl. And uh, she's now a therapist and uh, speaks about her experiences and trauma from those perspectives. In the UK, we have Savannah Severn, who, like me, is an, an ally, so not a survivor herself, but who experienced the unpaid BDSM community, but can speak to how that draws from porn culture and um, is also, you know, a gateway into, into other things, as well as, yeah, highly problematic practice in itself, anti-woman in so many ways. In Australia, we have Ali Marie Diamond, also a survivor of sexual exploitation, also an Indigenous woman uh, right now fighting very fierce legislative battles um, between the different Australian states that are, you know, going back and forth. Some have prohibition, some have full decrim. Uh, some hopefully just may actually adopt the equality model. And um, in Switzerland, we have Katya Lydia Grace, originally from Brazil, exploited in the Swiss sex trade, and now uh, fighting uh, again in a country that's very hostile um, to to her work and the work of survivors. Um, doing pioneer work there to even you know make that critical uh, narrative heard and from germany there's myself and roxy roots uh, roxy is a survivor of the porn industry exploited um, uh, during various years that she lived in the uk um, with a lover boy exploiter and uh, someone who can speak to the the reality of OnlyFans. so even women who um, are somewhat monetarily successful um, the the price they pay is is far too steep. And so that brings us to the different uh, formats for the show that we came up with that that we're working on right now. We want this to be a podcast that is, of course, for the feminist community, the abolitionist community, but it's also something we hope that you can send to your family members, friends, colleagues who don't know what's going on, who are totally... Um, green, new to the subject. And so we want to start with a sex industry 101, prostitution 101, porn 101, trafficking 101. What are these things? How do they work? So that from then they can go into our deeper dive episodes and understand what's going on there. And so one format for deeper dives is a group discussion. I just showed we're nine women in different constellations, focusing on different issues, honing in on different facts, myths, science, personal experience, uh, so many things we can draw from. We want to go really deep and have the conversations that we wish the media, the mainstream media would cover all the time, but they're, they hardly ever do. And also, we hope um, to bring, hopefully, let's say at least once a month, a news update, updating the international community, what's going on in the abolitionist side, what's going on in, in the culture. Again, many different things uh, to talk about. What's what's in the news, but we're maybe not hearing the full story. What's the survivor perspective on this, etc. And finally, of course, it's supposed to be a platform, especially for survivors of the sex trade, but also other experts um, to yeah bring bring that knowledge uh, to to a broader audience and um, get a lot of those voices heard in one dedicated place. So where we are in the project, we originally started out having conversations independently. Many of us were thinking, why isn't there, you know, a survivor-led um, podcast that really brings all these different issues together? Is not there are some that are on trafficking that are excellent, but they 
they don't necessarily tell the broader picture. And um, so we came together, formed this group that you that I uh, just uh, talked to you about, and we started planning, creating a vision, uh, scope, topics, the mission statement. And we're very grateful that we've ar already been able to fundraise um, the basic financial, uh, yeah, the financial baseline that we need for the time being, we raised 5,000 uh, Canadian dollars over on GoFundMe. And that made it so uh, made it possible for us to purchase the, the tech we need, like microphones and headphones for all the women in the group, a website domain, a jingle and the logo that you already saw. And we will have running costs, um, especially for editing, which is a very time consuming part of making a podcast. But we also want to make sure that when a survivor of violence, of sexual exploitation comes on our podcast, they don't um, have to do that. Um, yet another volunteer based thing for free. Um, we want to compensate them and really show appreciation because um, we know that it can cut into someone's finances. It's a difficult thing to speak about publicly. And um, yeah, to make sure that women feel appreciated uh, for, for the time they invest when they trust us with their stories and insights. And the point where we are at now, we're very close to recording our first episode. We will, in fact, do that next week. And um, we hope to get a few uh, completed, edited, um, uh, finished episodes under our belt so that we can apply for long-term funding. So that's the, the the big challenge now. How can we make sure that we can keep going um, and, and maintain this project in the long run? And so there are different ways, well, why we come to you, there are different ways uh, to potentially support us. So we have someone waiting in the wings who could help us with post-production for a reasonable price. Um, and But some women have expressed they would prefer if it was a woman, uh, the person who... Um, we're, we're talking to right now as a man and some women have said it, especially with sensitive content, they would love if the editor was a woman. So um, if somebody knows someone or would volunteer their own time or give us, you know, um, um, yeah, uh, an affordable price um, or even do that on, just on specific episodes with sensitive content, that would be one way to help us. And same with the website, we can, of course, hire um, a professional designer and we think anyone should be compensated for their work. Um, but yeah, if, if someone with a feminist background um, knows where to get a good price or would, would offer that themselves or feels passionate about this and would like to be involved in some way, um, that's one way to do it. And same with marketing. Again, we... Andrea and me, we have a, a social media presence. Other women in the group do as well. But it is a lot of work to keep posting and keep posting um, about a project. So any help in that area or ideas, recommendations, do's and don'ts um, would be helpful because none of us are professional podcasters. Well, actually, except Savannah, uh, who has some experience with that. But everyone else is, is new to this. And finally, fundraising. Um, where could we get... Um, you know, a one-time sum or, or or a longer running uh, funding that doesn't censor us. Because that's obviously, I mean, again, don't have to tell this audience that feminists get censored all the time for the various supposed phobias. And we'll be touching on, on a number of sensitive issues. And we want um, especially survivors to be able to speak freely, even if their experience is somehow considered not politically correct or um, just touches sensitive areas that there will never be a conversation that doesn't um, irk someone out there in some way. 
And yeah, just the most, uh, the easiest way to support us is the GoFundMe, which is still running. So um, there you can find the link. But if that's, uh, if you don't have anything to, to write it down now, no problem. We'll be sharing it later. And it's also the pinned tweet in on my Twitter profile. So if you go to at Ellie Arrow, that's E-L-L-Y arrow like born bow and arrow you can also find it there and support us and we appreciate any any some big or small um and yeah we're especially here to to crowdfund ideas um on how to like i mentioned the tech uh the fundraising um to to get ideas on on how to do that from other women who maybe have more experience in that area so now we're going to go to our next speaker, who is Sarah Fillimore. She is a um, family law barrister and member of Fair Cop. And we're going to talk about and um, have a discussion about Sarah's some of Sarah's expertise. Um, the Rachel Mead case, what can we do, do when the law is ignored? So first of all, I'd like to say thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on. Can you tell us about your work as a barrister and how you know about the Rachel Mead case? And is it correct that you were the lawyer for the Rachel Mead case? I'm a family law barrister, so I mainly do child protection cases. So there's obviously a lot of intersection with my work and with human rights. So I know my way around um, the European Declaration and the Human Rights Act. I'm not a specialist in equality discrimination law, but I feel like I'm becoming one um, the more that I read. I was involved in Rachel Mead's case, but at the fitness to practice tribunal stage. For those who aren't familiar, I'll just give you a quick um, overview of the facts. Rachel Mead was a social worker. She had a Facebook group, which was private, as all social workers are advised to do. Keep off social media for obvious reasons. You're dealing with vulnerable service units, children and adults. Not a good idea. Private Facebook group. In June 2020, one of her Facebook friends made a complaint about Rachel to her regulator, who's called Social Work England. That complainant was a trans-identifying female called Aidan Walton, who is now the strategic lead at Sports England for Diversity. So remember that point. That, that's quite significant. Rachel was then plunged into an investigation. This was before Maya Forstarter's successful appeal. So Rachel initially... Um, bowed down and said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, because she didn't want to lose her job. She was the breadwinner. So she she bowed and she scraped. She said, I'm ever so sorry, ever so sorry. And she received some sort of sanction and written warning. But then the fourth stars of judgment came out and Rachel thought, hmm, hang on a minute. Nothing that I did was problematic. The posts that she'd been sharing on Facebook were links to petitions, say for Fair Play for Women. But Aidan Walton said Fair Play for Women were a hate group. And, and that therefore that Rachel was supporting discriminatory practices. After the four-starter judgment, she thought, no, I'm not having this. And so she refused to accept the sanction. Social Work England then decided she had to go to a full fitness to practice tribunal to consider whether she could even remain as a social worker. So that's what happened in October 2022. And that's when I came on board because Rachel was also considering going to the employment tribunal, was trying to raise money for that. It's hellishly expensive. So the Bad Law Project um, paid for me to represent her. I was absolutely shocked and horrified by what I read. I've sent you a link to my most recent Substack post, 
which has got in it links to a previous Substack post where you could see some of Rachel's posts and a link to the judgment of the Employment Tribunal and also a link to the submissions I made to the Fitness to Practice Tribunal. That's via the EBSWORK website. That's the Evidence-Based Social Work Alliance. So if there are any social workers in the audience who are feeling a bit lost and lonely, then get in touch with EBSWA because they'll support you. Uh, the thing that made my jaw hit the floor when I was reading a statement of Social Work England was the usual, oh, she's a bigot, she's awful, you know, can she even be a social worker? She doesn't accept that a gender recognition certificate means that the holder is illegally, socially and biologically the sex they claim to be. Now, my jaw hit the floor quite, quite literally. I don't think I've ever gasped out loud. Remember, this was a statement written by Social Work England in July 2022. So one year and a month after the judgment in Forstarter, which set out very clearly what a GRC does and does not do. For those who are not um, in England and Wales, a gender recognition certificate is something you can apply for if you want to be recognised as the sex which is opposite to the sex that you were born. And that clarifies your position in law. It sets up a legal fiction that you are, you're born a man, but you're now claiming to be a woman. But that legal fiction can be disapplied in a variety of circumstances, sport being the most obvious. It most definitely does not mean you change biological sex. That, that's magical thinking. It's medieval. And to see it in a statement of case from a very powerful regulator of a very necessary and important profession was actually shocking. And the other shocking thing was, of course, at the Fitness to Practice Tribunal, Social Work England were represented by Robin Moira White, a trans-identifying male barrister who appears to have developed rather a monopoly in these cases and I think is a big part of the problem that we're now facing. Because the Fitness to Practice Tribunal was one thing, the Employment Tribunal is quite another. And um, Rachel was represented extremely ably there by Naomi Cunningham and Cole Khan solicitors. But what I think I really need to emphasize about this fitness to practice tribunal is I was raring to go. I was so excited. It was going to be live tweeted by tribunal tweets. It was shooting fish in a barrel doesn't even come close. I, I wouldn't have to do anything to utterly humiliate my opponent. And for a barrister, that is the sweetest, sweetest feeling. That's what we live for. And it's rare because normally your opponents aren't stupid and they've got some pretty good arguments of their own. But what went, then happened when we got to the tribunal was the Social Work England applied to discontinue on the basis of new information. And I said, mm, uh, come again, what new information, please? The new information was apparently they hadn't realised that her Facebook post was private. She told them it was private two years ago. They hadn't realised what the contents of the posts were. Um, they'd had them since June 2020. So they hadn't bothered to read them. They'd just taken Aidan Walton's um, word for it, that they were deeply offensive and bigoted and discriminatory. And the third reason was they hadn't realised that Rachel was such an exemplary social worker and had got such brilliant character references. Again, complete bullshit, if I may use a technical legal term. They'd had the character reference for years. This was a device. It was a device to escape humiliation. I objected. And it was a bit of an odd position for me to be in because they were basically saying, we're not going to continue against your client anymore. We're withdrawing our case. 
But that wasn't a victory because the reasons they gave were utterly dishonest. They knew they were not merely going to lose, but they were going to be humiliated. So they confected a reason to withdraw that was allowed by the tribunal. I've rarely been so furious and exasperated in all my professional career. This was dishonest. This was profoundly dishonest in an attempt to escape a well-deserved humiliation. But okay, take a deep breath. You know, I, I, I didn't get my day of glory, which I'm still sore about, but that's not important. What's important, that Rachel, who'd had this hanging over her head for years, was told by her regulator they were not going to pursue a case against her. That makes what happens next all the more remarkable because Social Work England and Westminster City Council, her employer, did not back down. She was taking them to an employment tribunal um, for discrimination and victimisation. She had been suspended for a year, luckily on full play, but it's still no joke as a social worker when you're depending on evolving practice to be suspended for a year. must be horrible. Not only that, but her manager and another social worker were also suspended for not reporting Rachel for her grotesque and shameful posts. So it was obvious, I think, as Michael Foran said, I was um, with him on Andrew Dawes' show on Sunday, potted plants could have won Rachel's case. No disrespect to Amy Cunningham and the team. They were excellent, but he's quite right. It was an open and shut case of overt victimisation and discrimination on an unlawful basis, which was known to have been unlawful since the June 2021 EAT decision in Maya Forstarter's case. It was incredible. Why they went ahead, I don't know. Robin Moira White was not, I understand, involved in the employment tribunal, but some lawyers out there are advising social working in Westminster City Council they had a case. Or some lawyers are desperately trying to get them to back down and they're refusing. Either way, that's really, really frightening. And the thing that really triggered me into feeling more and more fear was somebody sent me an internal blog written by Sarah Newman, who's the head honcho of Westminster City Council. I don't know her title, chief executive or something. Um, that means she's also responsible for Kensington and Chelsea. So two large London boroughs. She's responsible for hundreds of staff, thousands of vulnerable children and vulnerable adults. And in her blog, she wrote about her trans-identifying stepson. And that really is, as Helen Joyce says, problem that we have here. A lot of these people in positions of power and influence appear to be motivated by the fact that they have a child or know a child who is trans-identifying. And that seems to be the cue for all logic, reason, and obeying the law to go out of the window. So it was really, really shocking to see that. I don't know why they thought they had a case. They tried to argue that Forstarter said, you're allowed to think these evil turf thoughts, but you're never allowed to talk about them. Robin White commented on the Employment Tribunal judgment saying, it's hardly seismic. Um, <laughs> all it did, I mean, in terms of its legal impact, it's nothing. It simply restates what we know to be the law. Rachel had every right to go on a private Facebook group and share newspaper articles from the mainstream media to donate money to petitions about women in sport. She had absolutely every right, and she would have every right to do that as an identified social worker. 
So all the, the Mead case did was simply affirm what we've always known to be true. But that's why it's of such huge practical significance and also why I think it sends a gloomy message for how the rest of our time is going to go. The fitness for practice, which was not allowed to carry on or they withdrew, if they had done that fitness to practice um, hearing and you had won, would there have been uh, like more precedent? Would that have sort of been made public and we could have used that as a precedent? Or, well, no, or is that again, because I knew I was going to win because this matter had already been dealt with in the case of Felix Nagole, a student social worker who was devout Christian and had pretty Old Testament views about homosexuality and expressed them on his Facebook group. Now, Felix Nagoli had to go all around the houses, but eventually ended up with, I think, the Court of Appeal agreeing that because there was no evidence that he had any kind of discriminatory practice in real life, and he was very clear to, to make it clear, he worked with gay people, he did not allow his Christian views to impact on his practice. Now, I appreciate it's it's difficult, the more extreme your views are, to see how you can do that. But there was no evidence before any tribunal court that Felix Ngole discriminated against homosexuals. As a Christian, he has a protected characteristic and a right to believe as he did. So we already had the law. The law was already there. The same thing for Harry Miller. You asked him one of the questions. Yeah. What's the interplay between Forstarter and Miller? Well, they're both very similar in that they are fundamentally restating the importance of Article 10 in the European Convention of Human Rights. And for Americans, they will have um, the first article of their constitution. Freedom of speech is the right upon which all other freedoms depend. If you cannot talk about things, if you cannot meet people who agree with you and associate with them and talk about things, you cannot protect any of your rights. So the freedom to speak is universally recognised as absolutely fundamental to any functioning democracy. So Harry Miller was dragged over the coals because he tweeted um, something about Jenny Murray. He retweeted um, a song lyric saying your vagina is made of your vagina goes nowhere. Your breasts are silicon. And he was visited by a police officer um, to say that he committed the most vile hate speech which, according to the police, is only a few steps away from actually going out and murdering trans people. So, of course, he had to be dealt with. So Harry Miller, um, the Court of Appeal, reaffirmed the importance of Article 10, said that the way the police had acted was unlawful. Rachel Mead, again, it's more about her Article 10 rights and how there's absolutely no clash as a social worker for her to state that biological sex is real and it matters and that women have a right to single-sex female spaces. These are absolutely proper things to believe and to talk about. So Miller, Forstarter and Mead are all examples of individuals having to go through years of hell and enormous financial cost to simply reaffirm the law that was already there. And that's why as a lawyer, I'm really worried because you asked me, Joe. well, mm. brilliant, you know, we've got Mead. Surely, surely we're at the end of this nonsense now. I mean, Fair Cop have analysed what's been donated to these grassroots activist cases in England. 4.5 million so far. Now, just think what that money could do. And of course, that isn't 
anywhere near the full cost because a lot of those lawyers would have been working at cut rates or have done some pro bono work. It doesn't say anything about the hours and hours and hours of these people's lives taken over by this. Think of all the time and energy wasted, diverted and simply trying to protect what should already have been there. The Mead case shouldn't have happened because the lawyers should have read the Harry Miller case and the Forstatter case, which said, in our law, we are allowed to have beliefs. As long as we don't go around being really, really like walking up to people and harassing yeah. them, yeah. we're allowed to have our own views. But that was ignored. And I sort of get the feeling they're just they're just going to keep going until they get the result they want. Like uh, uh, it, It's a form of grinding a stand. Because what's happened is the state ought to be stepping in. Um, the Equalities Commission ought to be stepping in. The government ought to be stepping in to leave it up to individuals to take on state agents to protect their fundamental rights. There's going to be a time when we are all exhausted and we haven't got any more money to give to these crowdfunders. I wonder whether this is the deliberate tactic but I am both horrified and heartened in equal measure by the case that's going on at the moment with the Edinburgh Rape Crisis Centre. For those who are not in the jurisdiction and don't know, somebody who worked there was asked by a service user if a person with a male name was male. This person was a woman who wanted to be identified as non-binary. So the, the rape crisis worker asked in a very polite email, would it be possible to describe this non-binary woman as a non-binary woman, to reassure the service user. For that email, she was sacked um, for gross misconduct, for hateful, bigoted, offensive conduct. Um, the woman who made that decision was cross-examined yesterday in a tribunal, again by Naomi Cunningham, and she claimed to never have heard of the decision in Forstarter. Now, she's a liar because she tweeted at the time how... Maya Forstater made her tremble in fear. Yeah, not quite as fearful as the service user who'd been sexually violated by a man and wanted reassurance that there were not she was not going to meet a man out on the premises. I'm sure that woman's horror was a great deal more significant than the horror felt by a woman having her fundamental rights upheld. So we've now got to the stage where people are just prepared to lie under oath. Of course she knew about the judgment. Either she she thinks this is a way round it, because I, I think they're going to lose and they're going to lose big. And again, I'll be saying it's a case that should never have been bought. It isn't gross misconduct to ask how you might properly reassure a service user in the absolute single sex female provision. It's heartening to see um, that the umbrella organisation for these groups in Scotland has now thrown Edinburgh under a bus and deservedly so, saying, well, we've always supported women-only provision, oh, except for the times when we didn't, but never mind that now. Um, we sense the wind is blowing in a certain direction. So like I say, I'm torn between being horrified at what's happened and heartened, because this may be another Isla Bryson moment for Scotland, where the public are brought slam slap up against the hard brick wall of the reality of what it means to pander to male validation against the rights of women to their bodies and their autonomy and their thoughts. So Scotland, although it's been the architect of much of the insanity here, might actually again rescue us. Because as soon as people saw pictures of Adam Graham 
um, as Isla Bryson wanting to go to a female prison, um, the scales fell from many eyes. One worry, though, is that um, just in the way that the police don't implement laws around rape, and they've managed to get away with that and, and domestic violence, um, it seems as if they might be now, the institutions might be saying, OK, well, we don't really like these laws um, and the, these these rulings, but we're just going to keep going anyway um, mm. and sort of claim lack of resources or claim incompetence. And so we could get uh, the rolling, I mean, I the rolling out and, and then you, like you say, maybe we'll get so exhausted at taking the cases, but de facto we'll be in a... I in many situations, it's going to just be implemented yeah. outside the I, law. I think there's there's a real distinction between the failure of the state to prosecute successfully offences of rape and coercive control and what's happening at the moment. The problem with violence that occurs in relationships is the lack of evidence. And sadly, the court relies on evidence. And that's why a lot of these prosecutions will fail because, you know, the, the rapist will say, well, yeah, of course we had sex, but I thought she was consenting. And it is, it's very, very difficult in a legal environment to bring that forward to a successful prosecution. That's a failing, yes, but it's a different failing to what we're seeing at the moment, which is denial of reality and forcing other people to join in with your denial of reality. I think that's much, much scarier with the unsatisfactory rate of prosecutions and rape cases, we can deal with it because we all know what we're talking about. Everyone's got the same language and the same goal. But if the people in power are saying, oh, that's not a man, it's a woman, when you can see with your own two eyes, it's a man, there's no proper discussion to be had, is there? It, there's no way forward because somebody is saying, you have to believe you have to cooperate with my delusion. So it's a problem on a different scale, a different magnitude and a different kind of horror. And I think unless we can get that driven out of our public bodies and our police forces, we are not going to be able to do anything about the current approach to rape and coercive control with which many people are highly dissatisfied. So I think it is important to keep that distinction. There's a yeah. failure of a system which is probably down to resources or evidential difficulties. And there's this mass terrifying delusion that we can just wish reality away if we want to. And that's so profoundly dangerous. It is, it is literally driving everybody mad, even the people who want to believe it. I mean, I tried to join a space last night on Twitter with some bloke in America who's got a PhD in genetics and was going to talk about sex. And I thought, well, I might learn something. Within 10 minutes, he had descended to foul-mouthed rage and talking about Colin Wright was speaking and, you know, making the obvious point that sex is about the way the reproductive systems in your body are organised. This was called bullshit, you know, swearing. And I thought the guy was going to have a heart attack. See, it is driving everybody mad. I, I don't understand who this is actually helping apart from a very very small group of people but i am I'm, I'm quite worried about where we're going because not only should mead never have happened nor should forstarter nor should miller and there was i think a very naive article in the guardian of all places at least they're recognizing it saying oh don't worry it's just been a bit of a blip everyone's going to get trained properly and these cases will stop but the people doing the training are stonewall and gendered intelligence so they are going to carry on misrepresenting or ignoring the law 
And these cases are just going to keep coming until, Joe, as you say, we are all so exhausted. You know, we won't even be able to scrape together another tenner for a crowdfunder. I know a, uh, a teacher who is a trans rights activist and um, she uses the term, uh, she says, she promotes the idea that gender identity is a protected characteristic and so i was saying so in discussion i was saying but it's not it's not a protected characteristic it's gender reassignment and she said oh well we just use gender identity because it's better and i go yeah but it's not the law you're just changing what's and and she said yeah well well it's just better it's just better so that's what we're doing and it it seems as if quite a lot of professionals are are so in their own bubble of what's good and bad that they're quite happy to be moving reality beyond the law in the way that, that like yeah. and, and that is horrifying because it's the end of law, the rule of law. We, we can trace that directly to Stonewall's guidance. Stonewall very cunningly said to people, what you need to do is go above and beyond the law, be better. What it cannot do is assert supremacy over sex ever. There may be some situations where it's on a par with sex. But when we're talking about rape crisis centres, sports, anywhere, as sex has primacy. So we've got this awful hot mess of people actually being told that they are good and they are noble for going against the law. Because we know the law takes its time to catch up with societal mores. I get that. But... If we just abandon the law and if we start making it up as we go along, which is what Stonewall have told everyone they can do, and it makes them morally righteous if they do, you see why we're in such a hot mess. You see why we're going round and round in Groundhog Day. Because I'm sure nobody at Social Work England thought, let's just ruin Rachel Mead's life because we're bastards. I'm sure they all thought, this is shocking. A social worker who's exhibiting discriminatory practice, we must act problem is they were ignorant as to the law and by attempting to root out discriminatory practices they practice themselves a really gross and serious form of bigotry and discrimination yeah. and, and i think you meant you mentioned that the ruling in the mead case is that they actually turned it around and said that is it social work england or westminster council had actually done like they'd been discriminatory against me but they went further yeah both institutions had harassed victimized and discriminated against rachel mead and that's why i'm just aghast when they'd had the very clear warning from the fitness to practice tribunal because i was very kind and helpful i led them paragraph by paragraph down every avenue where they were wrong So they'd had it spelt out to them by me in October 2022, and yet they continued. So either they're getting very bad advice or they're not listening to the advice they're being given. Either situation is frankly terrifying because these are huge organisations with huge power. If Rachel Mead had been um, expelled as a social worker, she was the breadwinner in her family. You can imagine the pressure on people. That's it. You know, you cannot practice in the job that you've given 20 years of your life for, which you were said yeah. to conduct yourself in an exemplary way. So there is something very, very wrong still happening. 
And it's just incredibly naive, as the person quoted in the Guardian article said, oh, we're coming to the end of it now because everyone's just going to get trained up. No, they're not, because this isn't just about training. This is about telling people what they're doing is morally good. And that's very, very hard for people to let go of. Once they've been told a certain course of action makes them righteous, you know, this phrase, the right side of history is thrown at us all the time. Oh, you'll be on the, you won't be on the right side of history. It's very, very powerful. And it allows people to shut their eyes to the real evil that they are doing. Because you can't argue with them. And they won't think. There'll be no reflection. Because what they're doing is right. So I have to give enormous grudging respect to whoever it was that cooked up all of this with the Yogyakarta principles and because they've really done a number on people's brains. It's been an extremely successful takeover. I mean, these people who are getting the law so horribly wrong are not stupid. They're highly competent, highly trained, mature people. And I mean, all I can think of, I saw some horrible picture of this poor um, caterpillar or, or no, a snail wandering along. And it had been infected by a parasitic wasp and the wasp controlled it. And there was this, the body of this poor snail being controlled, a zombie. It, I just keep getting that in my head. That's what's happening now. So either we're going to rescue ourselves as a society or we're just going to keep on and on and on having these cases. But I'm going to try and, and be positive and hope that the judgment in the Edinburgh Rape Crisis Centre case is going to be absolutely excoriating, sort of mead on steroids. And that may help people wake up because the thought that people going to a rape crisis centre are not allowed to believe the evidence of their own eyes that there is a man in front of them is one of the cruelest things that this ideology can possibly promulgate. And I, I just yeah. want to believe that people will, will wake up. What about internationally? Do you know what's happening internationally? And do you think, because we've got a large international audience on this webinar, um, do you think it's worse internationally? Or are you? Well, it, it seems to be. I mean, certainly in Canada, um, with um, Amy Hamm, um, Jordan Peterson going for re education, um, the case, I think, of the father imprisoned for objecting to his child's transition. Canada seems to be even further down the rabbit hole. The US, I'm utterly astonished, given their very firm commitment to freedom of speech. It's the foundation of the bloody constitution of the entire country. And yet the capture of gender identity ideology seems to be very much further entrenched in the US. And of course, um, neither Canada or the US, as far as I know, have anything equivalent to the Equality Act. And that's really been very, very useful for us. So I'm extremely worried about what's going to happen because obviously America is such a large and an important country. And what I wonder is driving America is that is their healthcare system is so very different and money talks. And certainly the amount of gender affirming surgeries carried out on even young girls in America seems very, very disturbing and not something I'm aware that's happening in other jurisdictions, which actually are rowing back against the medicalization and surgical transition of children. So it's, I mean, you probably all remember that that meme. Um, there was a picture of um, someone had, had 
the strength of transphobic tweets across the world and they coloured them in purple. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> and England, Wales and Scotland were like, <laughs> this yeah. huge neon beacon to the world. And it, there's been lots of talk about, you know, why have people in Britain been more successful? And, you know, there's all sorts of reasons I won't go into them. But it's, this is such a huge battle. I think we've got to get our own houses in order. Of course, give whatever help we can to women all around the world. And I think there has been a lot of interaction and discussion between American and Canadian women. And of course, you know, the utter sad tragedy is other countries are dealing with threats to female existence, such as denying them education and killing them. You know, and sometimes we have to remember how lucky we are, but also not to get complacent because if our rights are removed, in the way that some would have them, I'm not sure how far away we are from situations where we're then denied any voice at all or education. So I think you can so easily get overwhelmed because this is happening all over the world. Women are suffering in hideous ways. And I think get your own house in order, give what assistance and succor and support you can to your sisters across the globe. But obviously we we can't fix everything and you can easily become just overwhelmed by the scale of the problem. So what I've tried to do is just, well, just do something every day, even if it's just a an angry tweet when someone says I'm transphobic. I'd say, well, report me to the police then. Yeah, you tried that, you failed. Now, fuck off. You know, I'm getting incre- increasingly more testy. I'll try not to get too testy because obviously I've had my own run-in with my own regulator. That was two years of fun. And they backed off because I think they saw that they were also heading for a very humiliating clash in a tribunal but it's absolutely bonkers i only got involved in this in 2018 it's what 2024 now i mean we have made enormous strides things are changing but mead should never have happened the edinburgh rape crisis case should never have happened these happened in defiance of the law and that's really really worrying we're going to now go on to hannah ryan who is our final speaker, and Hannah Ryan is from the UK, and she is going to tell us about how we can um, submit to the World Health Organization guidelines, is a call for feedback um, on the health of trans and gender diverse people. So Hannah, thank you so much for coming on, and I'm gonna hand over to you. So uh, this is me, I am a, a doctor, I'm a specialist registrar in clinical pharmacology and general medicine, and I work in the northwest of England. Um, I'm a former, um, or I'm an author and former editor with Cochrane Infectious Diseases, and Cochrane are an international collaboration that produce system- systematic reviews of evidence that are often used in evidence-based guideline processes, and I've been previously involved in several guidelines projects as a methodologist. Um, I'm also part of Labour Women's Declaration, and I am the secretary of the Clinical Advisory Network on Sex and Gender, which is a UK and Ireland um, network of healthcare workers thinking about sex and gender issues. Um, and I, this is my brief declaration of interests. I don't have any um, financial, institutional or academic interests in the outcome of this guideline. It obviously relates to my work in um, CANSG and LWD. And I have said things in public about these issues in the past. <clears throat> okay, so just a very brief background. The WHO um, is a specialized agency of the UN and it's 
primary responsibility is international public health, but it's also engaged in human rights work um, insofar as the right to health is engaged, um, which will become relevant later. So what they're supposed to do um, is make guidance on lots of aspects of public health, um, and that you know extends from sort of uh, epidemic infectious diseases down to sort of you know chronic diseases, sexual health, reproductive health, everything. Um, and often their guidelines are used at national level around the world to help set policy frameworks or to support policy frameworks. Um, and they've got an evidence-based um, process that they're supposed to follow when they're making guidelines. So this guideline is a new guideline for WHO. They've never made one specifically on trans and gender diverse people before. Um, just to sort of uh, language caveat. I'm going to use WHO's language, so I'm going to talk about trans and gender diverse people, but I'm going to tell you what they mean by that in just a second. So um, the focus of this guideline will be five areas. Um, so you can see there on screen, that includes provision of gender affirming care, including hormones relating to adults. So this guideline won't look at children under the age, or anyone under the age of 18. Um, health worker education, and training for the provision of gender inclusive care, provision of health care for trans and gender diverse people who have suffered interpersonal violence, and health policies that support gender inclusive care, including legal recognition of self-determined gender identity for adults. And of course, they don't really mean self-determined gender identity, they mean self-determined legal sex. Um, so this is the definition that WHO are working with for trans and gender diverse people. And I did sort of think that actually, probably a lot of the people on this call would come under this um, definition because it includes basically anyone who's gender non-conforming. So, um, so it's, it's a bit wishy-washy, but we're all used to um, there being no real definition of what we mean by trans. Um, so the timeline for this process, this began in 2021 um, uh, and uh, a stakeholder consultation happened in 2022. Um, so the stakeholder consultation will have involved UN member states, um, but it also largely involved um, trans rights organisations around the world. Um, and, and we can see that there are specific organizations who've contributed to the um, scope and development of this guideline. Um, and then in 2023, in June, there was a public announcement um, uh, announcing the first 14 guideline development group members. And the guideline development group is important because they're the group of um, experts that come together to look at the evidence and make recommendations for a guideline. So they're very influential to the outcomes of a guideline. So I think it's fair to say that most people who are interested in this area missed this in June. We must have been paying attention to something else and we didn't pick this up. But then there was another announcement on the, 7th, on the 18th of December and we did notice this one and they announced uh, seven additional members for the guideline development group. Um, and that's when really kind of an international response from um, people who were critical of gender medicine and from feminists kind of began. So the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine um, uh, put out a position statement, the Who Decides petition that perhaps some of you have seen was, was started. 
Reem Al-Salem, the UN Special Rapporteur for Violence Against Women, wrote to the Director General of the WHO. Um, and really, I think it's fair to say that the WHO steering group in charge of this guideline were not surprising this level, not, was not expecting this level of international interest. Um, and they have extended the, the deadline for responses to this process. So the responses are all about mainly about the guideline development group members, um, but also about the scope of the guideline. And this has been extended to the 2nd of February. And the provisional date for the first meeting of the guideline development group is the 19th to the 21st of February in Geneva. Um, so, so that's the sort of close timeline that we're working with. Um, so what is the problem with this project? Um, probably many of you will have already sort of thought what the main problems with this project are. Um, but um, the main issues that, as I see it, are there's, there's a validation of gender affirming medical interventions that's kind of assumed in the language of this um, announcement and all of the information that we've had from WHO so far. Um, and they're not actually going to look at the safety and efficacy of these medical interventions, which would be a normal process for a WHO guideline on a healthcare intervention. They're going to look at um, interventions to increase access to these medicines. So they're not going to look at the, whether the medicines work or whether they're safe, whether they're appropriate, what kind of assessment people should have before they have them. They're going to just look at how we how we just increase access to them um, because they're obviously a great thing. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's particularly worrying because we know that the composition of the um, group that we might term trans and gender diverse has changed a lot over the last several years. Um, and uh, now in some countries is majority young people between sort of 16 and 25. Um, and majority female and majority same-sex attracted um, with a significant proportion of people who are neuro neurodiverse included in that population. Um, <clears throat> so, and then the other obviously big thing um, is the promotion of legal self-determination of gender um, on the grounds of public health and the health of trans and gender diverse people. So, this is interesting that they're leveraging a human rights argument for access to medicines and a health argument for access to um, a legal change of sex. Um, and, and this kind of policy direction has been a long time coming from WHO and the UN. Um, and I'm sure there are many women on this call who've been tracking that and, and I think it's perhaps not surprising that this is this is now what we're seeing from them, um, but there we are. And then there's a big problem with the guideline development group. So, um, out of 20, now twenty people um, on the group, eight are doctors. Five of them are associated with WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. There's one lawyer who specialises in LGBTQI plus um, rights internationally. And then there are 11 advocates from various different trans rights organizations, um, including GATE and ILGA and others. Um, so there are no people on this um, guideline panel that can talk about detransition. There are no people who can talk about the impact of um, legal self-ID on women 
and particularly on marginalized women and lesbians. Um, there are no people who can talk about, um, no clinicians who can talk about um, uh, managing people who have transition regret or detransition. Um, so it's a, a, an inherently biased and conflicted panel. Um, oh, there we go. Um, <clears throat> so this is what WHO say, they've re released an FAQ paper to go with the um, announcement that they're extending the deadline for responses. Um, I think they think that they're trying, they're going to be able to sort of just explain what they're doing and then everyone's complaints will go away. But actually, they've released more information for us to get angry about. Um, <clears throat> so, so this is their um, rationale for why um, legal self-ID should be included in a public health guideline document. Um, uh, and the key bit there, for trans and gender diverse people, the lack of legal gender recognition is a key barrier to access to health services, in addition to the full enjoyment of other rights, such as freedom of movement and right to adequate housing, education and employment. And remember that this is a guideline that's being devised for an international audience. So it's it's looking at um, uh, situations all over the world, not just in the global north. Um, and this would be a, a sort of a flagship policy in, in many uh, for many uh, people to take to their um, national government to try and um, further um, uh, efforts to move towards legal self-ID. Um, so I think it's important to note that um, the stage that this guideline is at, um, we're, they're at the stage where they've done some evidence review, they've recruited a guideline development group, um, they've got they've set the scope of their of their guideline, but they haven't sat down, looked at the evidence and made recommendations yet. So we don't know exactly what they'll recommend. Um, but it seems quite likely that this guideline will increase pressure on governments to adopt sex, sex self ID in law and certainly on um, institutions, health institutions to um, enact self ID of sex. Um, which effectively removes single sex provision and uh, uh, sex based language in health settings. Um, it also promotes the general idea of gender identity and the erasure of sex in health education and training. Um, and it will probably have a disproportionate impact on low and middle income countries um, where WHO policy um, is often more in, often more important given higher importance. Um, and it certainly will be leveraged by trans rights groups everywhere, um, and particularly where women and girls, where women have made gains against um, sex self-ID. So what can we do? We can write a response to WHO before the 2nd of February and ask them to address the bias of the guideline development group. Um, and I've got a whole series of links where you can find more information about this. Um, you can see responses that have already been submitted. Um, and that's the email address at the HIV, Global HIV Program, um, which is one of the departments of WHO that is uh, hosting this guideline process. Um, I think also, and you shouldn't feel that the 2nd of February is a deadline for this second one, but it's very important to write to government representatives and public health officials. So in the UK, that would be 
um, Kemi, ba Kemi Badnock as our Minister for Women and Equalities and Victoria Atkins, the Minister for Health, um, and Chris Whitty, our uh, Chief Medical Officer, um, and asked them to raise questions with the Director General of the w of WHO and the Chief Scientist um, and their regional representatives on the WHO Executive Board. Um, so WHO as a UN agency functions like other UN parts of the UN and they are sort of political political and diplomatic organizations. So if, if we can get um, political representatives to contact them, that is highly impactful. Um, uh, if you can get this issue into the news where you are, that also puts pressure on WHO. So probably part of the reason why they've extended this this um, deadline is because the Times, the Guardian, um, the Daily Mail have been covering this issue in the UK. It's been covered in the press in the US. Um, so as much press attention as we can get for this, the better, because that puts pressure on WHO to at least be seen to be taking action. Um, uh, and we really need to share the news that this is happening with sisters the world over and encourage them to take action. It will be particularly powerful if feminist groups um, in low and middle income countries take up this issue and write to their representatives and make representation to WHO. Um, this uh, issue will disproportionately affect those settings um, and they have of course, as Sarah alluded to, many, many other issues that they are concerned with. They don't need to be fighting battles on um, legal sex self-ID. Um, and then if you uh, want to connect with me and with others who are um, sharing skills and sharing information about this, um, then I'd be very happy for that. Um, I'm learning about this as I go along. I'm not a, I'm not a human rights expert and I'm not an expert on um, how you lobby a UN agency, but I'm I'm trying my best to learn as I go. And um, and there are some there are definitely some tasks that we have developing arguments around the the human rights end of this because the the sort of evidence based medicine part of it there are there are now many clinicians around the world who are engaged on that and we can easily make those arguments, but when they've taken an issue outside of you know, it, they, what they've done very cleverly over the last two decades is to take this issue out of a mental health context. It's no longer a mental health diagnosis. And so access to transition treatments becomes a human rights issue. Um, and that makes it extremely difficult for clin clinicians to push back at this level. Who led the WHO guideline process? It's being co-convened by three WHO departments, the Global HIV Programme, Department for Sexual and Reproductive Health and um, UN, um, WHO Gender, what is it, Women, Gender, Equity and Human Rights, not, not Women, Gender, Equity and Human Rights. Um, so, so um, you can see actually over the last decade, um, particularly the, the Global HIV programme have been increasingly captured. I think that's fair to say. So um, uh, trans rights lobbying groups have been um, sort of using that kind of silo to sort of push, push forward a lot of their um, agenda. Um, and you can, there are sort of good clinical reasons why people who are interested in HIV are interested in particularly trans-identifying men. Um, they do have higher rates of HIV in various settings. Um, so you can see why why there is a kind of 
there's a legitimate reason for them to have a, an interest in that area but it's but it's increasingly sort of expanded to other other aspects of um gender affirming care and the um legal um aspects of uh, gender identity is there anywhere we can get advice about what to say in response to the consultation so can sg's statement is online you'll feel free to use that to help there's segum's statement which is a bit more detailed um uh, there are, you know, you can pick one aspect of this whole issue because obviously it covers a load of things. So you can, if your if your um, priorities are around, um, you know, young people and young young adults and um, uh, the safety of gender affirming care, then write about that. If your if your issue is um, women's sex based rights, write about that. Um, and the emphasis should be on the guideline development group and pointing out that the guideline development group cannot cannot deliver a balanced guideline on this on these issues because they are all people who um, espouse belief in gender liberalized access to gender affirming care and legal sex self ID.